Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, June 24th. In today's news, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee is trailing his primary challenger in New York. A federal prosecutor will testify that he faced political pressure to go easy on Roger Stone. And the Senate teeters on the cusp of failure in the push for police reform. But first, the big idea. Baseball is coming back. Major League Baseball will return in July. Training camps will resume on July 1st, and opening day will take place either on July 23rd or 24th. It's four months behind schedule, but the season will be 60 games, by far the shortest in the sport's modern history, followed by a postseason. Unlike other sports, baseball is aiming to play this season with teams in their home cities, as opposed to a one-site quarantined bubble. As players begin arriving back to camp this week, all of which will be held in the team's home cities as opposed to spring training facilities in Arizona or Florida, they'll be tested for the coronavirus before being allowed to enter. It's the first of many tests each player and staff member will be subjected to. Teams will be aligned geographically to reduce travel, and while the MLB is yet to release a master schedule for the new condensed season, Each team will play 40 games within their own division and 20 games against teams from the corresponding division in the other league. Thus, the defending World Series champion Washington Nationals will play 10 games each against division rivals Atlanta, Miami, Philadelphia, and the New York Mets, and four each against AL East teams, Baltimore, Boston, the New York Yankees, Tampa, and Toronto. This will be a season unlike any in the sports history, featuring, among other wrinkles, a designated hitter in the National League for the first time, and probably, get this, extra innings that begin with a runner already on second base. The season will be played by necessity, without fans in ballparks, at least initially, but we'll still be able to tune in on television. My colleague Dave Scheinin, who's been bird-dogging the negotiations for us on the baseball beat, notes that this is happening as several states across the Sun Belt, which is home to more than a third of the teams in the league, have seen the number of infections spike in recent weeks. Already, the Philadelphia Phillies have confirmed an outbreak stemming from their spring headquarters in Clearwater, Florida, in which at least seven players and five staffers have tested positive. It's one of several developments that prompted the MLB to shutter all spring training facilities last week. Then last night, Literally, within minutes of MLB's announcement of a deal to start the season, the Denver Post reported that three members of the Colorado Rockies, including all-star outfielder Charlie Blackmon, has tested positive. Players, this is obviously one of the big hiccups, will earn 37% of their original 2020 salary if the season goes the full 60 games. Baseball had already consented to give high-risk players who opt out their full pay and service time But in one of the final issues that the union and the league resolved last night, the union secured the same benefits for players who live with someone, including a pregnant spouse, who is deemed high risk. So that would apply not only to players who have family members with medical conditions, such as Nationals reliever Sean Doolittle, whose wife has severe asthma, but also players whose wives are due to give birth this summer. This is a big deal for anyone who does fantasy baseball because that group includes some of the best in the game, including... Los Angeles Angels center fielder Mike Trout, and New York Yankees pitcher Garrett Cole. In other sports news, Denver Nuggets center Nikola Jokic 
tested positive as the NBA entered phase two of its reopening plan. The Arizona Republic reports that two unidentified members of the Phoenix Suns have also tested positive. Several other teams are waiting on test results expected to come back later today. And Novak Djokovic, the number one rated tennis player in the world, is apologizing today after testing positive for the virus. Three tennis players all revealed yesterday that they had coronavirus after playing at his competition. Jovic, a notorious anti-vaxxer who said he wouldn't get a coronavirus vaccine if one is developed, acknowledged that it was too soon to stage his tournament and said he is deeply sorry that it has caused so much harm. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, Jamal Bauman, a former middle school principal who's African-American and has the support of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has taken an early lead over House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Elliot Engel in the Democratic primary in New York. It's too soon to call that and a bunch of other races from last night because there are so many mail-in ballots because of the coronavirus and they take longer to count. But while it's too soon to call it, Bauman has a pretty significant lead. And in Kentucky, state legislator Charles Booker, who's also black, is locked in a still-too-close-to-call race with retired Marine Corps fighter pilot Amy McGrath, who was a star recruit of National Democrats, for the chance to wage a long-shot bid against Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. A third African-American candidate is leaving and leading significantly in a seven-way primary to replace retiring Congresswoman Nita Lowy in New York. If Mondaire Jones wins that seat, he will be the first openly gay black man to serve in Congress. Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, who chairs the House Oversight Committee, holds only a narrow lead over Siraj Patel, a hotel executive and former Obama campaign staffer. That contest is a rematch from 2018. Maloney, who's in her 14th term, seeking a 15th term, won then by 19 points. Now it looks like she might just narrowly hold on. And down in North Carolina, a 24-year-old won an upset over President Trump's pick to replace Mark Meadows. Madison Cawthorn, a 24-year-old, defeated Linda Bennett, the Republican handpicked by Trump and White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in a GOP runoff for the seat that Meadows gave up to take the chief of staff job. Cawthorn is poised to become the youngest member of the House in the solidly red district. He was going to go to the Naval Academy six years ago. In fact, he received a nomination from Meadows, but he couldn't attend because a car accident left him paralyzed from the waist down. Number two, a federal prosecutor and another Justice Department official plan to tell Congress later today that Attorney General Bill Barr and his top deputies issued inappropriate orders amid investigations and trials based on political considerations and a desire to cater to Trump. Aaron Zelensky, an assistant U.S. attorney in Maryland who was formally detailed to Bob Mueller's Russia investigation, will tell the House Judiciary Committee that prosecutors involved in the criminal trial of Trump's longtime confidant, Roger Stone, experienced, quote, heavy pressure from the highest levels of the Justice Department to cut Stone a break by requesting a lighter sentence. He intends to testify, according to his 4,000 words of testimony that were released in advance, that Stone, his understanding was, was to be treated differently and more leniently because of his relationship with the president. Zelensky will be joined by John Elias, who works in the Justice Department's antitrust division. He will say that Barr, 
ordered staff to investigate marijuana company mergers simply because he, quote, did not like the nature of their underlying business. As a result, the antitrust division launched 10 reviews of mergers in the marijuana industry and was ordered to probe a deal between major U.S. automakers and the state of California after Trump tweeted about it disparagingly. Months later, when the matter seemed near a close, political leaders ordered a subsequent investigation when California announced it would purchase vehicles only from automakers that complied with its fuel efficiency standards. Together, their accounts, which will be delivered under subpoena and under oath, are a damning indictment of Barr's management of the Justice Department, a tenure defined by unprecedented politicization. The testimony is also going to raise the stakes surrounding a subpoena that the Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler has promised to issue for Barr's testimony early next month. Number three, the chances of the Senate passing a police reform bill appear very slim this morning. The Senate needs 60 votes to pass something, but Republicans are refusing to negotiate with Democrats, saying that the opposition has to take or leave the proposal they worked out among themselves. Democrats say that the GOP bill, which is opposed by the NAACP and George Floyd's family, is woefully inadequate. The Republicans note that they incorporated a number of Democratic proposals, including legislation to make lynching a federal crime. But there has been no attempt to negotiate the differences between the dueling visions for policing bills, with the two parties disagreeing about the extent of a federal mandate to alter practices at thousands of local police departments. That difference in fundamental philosophies is apparent on one major issue, whether to explicitly ban no-knock warrants issued by a judge which allow officers to enter a residence without announcing themselves. The other big difference is about whether to ban chokeholds. The stalemate stands in stark contrast to the states. More than 250 policing-related bills have been introduced in 26 states since George Floyd's death. In Iowa, Republican Governor Kim Reynolds just signed a law restricting the use of chokeholds and preventing police officers who have been fired for misconduct from being hired elsewhere in the state. Colorado banned chokeholds and issued new mandates on the use of body cameras. Efforts have stalled in Minnesota, where Republicans abruptly adjourned a special session of the state legislature after being unable to reach a compromise with Democrats. Despite the hiccups in Congress, a new Washington Post poll out this morning finds that black Americans are optimistic about change following the recent nationwide protests. While a majority of Americans across all racial groups report feeling sad, angry, and troubled, by Floyd's killing. More than half of black adults say they personally or someone they know well had an unfair interaction with police in the past few years. More than a third say there was an occasion when they feared being hurt by a police officer, vastly higher than the share of white and Hispanic Americans reporting the same experiences. But black people also largely believe Floyd's death could be a catalyst for change, in part because people of all colors have participated in the protests that have played out in hundreds of cities and towns demanding change from political leaders. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, June 24th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.